as you're growing a business, whether it's a property management business or any business, you can't be afraid to try new stuff. You got to get out there and be innovative. Welcome, closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season three on profit. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and every week I interview world class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100 units or 1,000, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Kevin Ortner, the president and CEO of Renner's Warehouse, which currently manages 14,000 investors across 22,000 residential homes in 42 markets in 25 states. Man, that is a mouthful. Kevin is a lifelong entrepreneur who got his start in business at an early age, printing greeting cards at home and selling them door to door. Got to respect the hustle. He's also got a background in aviation, earning his pilot's license at 17, started a flight school while in college, and eventually got his start in real estate as a way to spend his downtime in between flying corporate jets. Today, we're going to hear about Kevin's path moving from Renner's Warehouse first franchisee in 2010 to now acting as CEO of the company. So if you're interested in better understanding the playbook that Renner's Warehouse has been executing, this is the interview for you. Kevin, welcome to the show. Wow. Thanks for having me, Jordan. That was quite the introduction. Uh, you make me sound uh, sound pretty interesting. That, that was great, man. I'm going to let my wife listen to this for sure. <laughs> well, I hope I'm not wrong, man. Let's let's talk about why I personally think it's interesting. So Renner's Warehouse came on my radar screen in around 2011, 2012. I was running Manage My Property, a lead gen company, smaller version of all property management. Renner's Warehouse was a big advertiser. As we were pivoting out of lead gen and into software, we're doing some customer discovery interviews. And I remember being in Guatemala with a crappy internet connection talking to Brenton Hayden. It was the first time I really got to know this guy. This was the founder of the company. And at the time, Renner's Warehouse was managing around 2,000 units and doing around $4 million in revenue. And I vividly remember him telling me that their goal was to double that figure in the next 12 months, which you know, sounds reasonably ambitious for any property management company. Brenton was the first property management entrepreneur that I had ever met that was actually leveraging unit economics. So a lot of interesting things that came out of that conversation. That was really the light bulb moment for me was to meet somebody that understood their customer acquisition cost and their lifetime value and was making strategic bets based on that. I believe at the time, Brenton mentioned that the company was doing about 50K on radio with spokespeople like Glenn Beck, Dan and Joe. And that was just a really different paradigm. It was very hard to make a comparison of Renner's Warehouse versus your average property management company. At that point, I met you around the same time. I was at, I believe it was the first Renner's Warehouse kind of franchisee convention. I want to hear some about the early days. So I would love to just kind of start off talking about what the business was like in those early years as a precursor to talk about the shifts at, once the business kind of grew up, took on outside capital and, and really changed. Early days of Renner's Warehouse. I think, you know, we, as we're running around this industry and we're talking with different people in our space and other property managers and our friends and partners out there in the world, you know, when they look at what we've done, we've grown a big business. I think oftentimes, you know, they forget we, we started like most of the other property managers in the world out there, right? We started as, as a small shop, small local property management company. You know, we are very entrepreneurial. We started very entrepreneurial. You know, I think we looked at it differently, though, than, than a lot of people maybe have in the past. And I think more people are starting to look at this as a real big business opportunity. When I got into property management, it was very much, you know, very small business kind of mindset, more of a hobby, kind of like the, you know, realtors were doing it part-time, Kind of to your point, when you talked with Brenton that first time and, and how we looked at unit economics and our customer acquisition costs and our cost to acquire a lead and, and our ultimate customer lifetime value, and we did a lot of math around that. And I think early on, we really started running the business like a high growth business and, and a business, not just a property management company. And that really made all the difference in the world. Um, and it's been a lot of fun to watch you guys out there 
with a lot of the events you're doing and the podcast and things like that, really trying to take that message, you know, and spread it out and say, here's how you got to be looking at your business in a different light. Here's how it's, there's ways to be able to, to build these bigger than I think a lot of people think. So we were just early in doing that. But we did start out with zero doors under management, zero markets, and, you know, have grown into what we are today through obviously a lot of, uh, a lot of hard work, a little bit of luck mixed in between, and, and obviously bringing on a, a financial capital partner to help us fund some of that growth here recently. But back to the root of your question, what was it like in the early days? It was, um, uh, man. Come on, man. Tell, tell me, it had to be a little crazy. It was super crazy. We were, you know, I was thinking we're, we're wearing, you know, tons of hats. So many property management companies out there today are still doing. We were no different. Running around, we were making it up as we, as we went, right? Figuring out this business, figuring out how to manage a couple properties, then hundreds of properties and, and, and building processes and, and trying to leverage technology and tools. And the frustrating thing in the early days was there wasn't a lot of technology and tools out there. You know, real estate's frankly somewhat archaic still when it comes to technology and a lot of the technology that's around the world. And then you had the property management aspect of, of that, a single family property management aspect of the real estate world. Nothing. Uh, so we developed some internal technology. We tried to, you know, change and leverage other technologies out there, but we just really thought we had to find a way to make this more efficient, less human touch, uh, but still obviously high customer service. You know, so we were running around with our hair on fire trying to grow this and a lot of things happen accidentally. And frankly, we made a lot of mistakes. Uh, we tried things, tested things, whether that be advertising and marketing, whether it be an operational process, you know, how we're interacting with our tenants, owners and clients, whatever it might be. You know, I think one of the key takeaways for me looking back at that time was how many times we failed, but we just reiterated on it and we iterated on it and changed it and made it work. And I think that uh, as you're growing a business, whether it's a property management business or any business, you can't be afraid to try new stuff. You got to get out there and be innovative. You don't have to create a new product or service line, but you got to be innovative about how you're trying to grow your business and deliver that service. And that's what I think we did well, was just continue to push that card up the hill. Uh, it was a lot of work and a lot of effort, but uh, you know we're, we're, we're seeing some great results from it now. Yeah, we, we, did, we did well. That may be a bit of an understatement, Kevin, but fair enough. Let's talk about the role of timing in business. What I got from Brenton in that conversation was a sense of urgency. I got a sense of the opportunity is now, the timing is now, and the messaging and the positioning of the company around that time was, hey, if you can't sell your home, don't foreclose, don't short sell, don't be stuck with it. Call Renters Warehouse and we will teach you how to rent it until the market comes back around. Obviously, you were playing to the market, but was it your sense at that time that there really was kind of a golden moment happening and did that drive a certain sense of urgency around growth? Yeah, there was a, there was a definite sense of urgency around growth. That was always our, our mission was to grow. And I don't think at the time either of us knew how big we could grow the company. Frankly, we, we didn't even realize how big of an industry this was going to turn into when we first got into it. And uh, I remember sitting around with Brenton early on in the days thinking, man, if we got to like 2000 doors in our management, that'd be, that'd be the cat's meow, right? That would be amazing. We well have arrived, but obviously we kept on growing right past, right past that. But there was a definite sense of urgency. We wanted to capitalize on the current market you know, conditions that were out there. We thought there was huge opportunity to do it. And uh, we were pioneers in how we went about trying to, to get those clients through the radio advertising and through some of the other things we were doing. So yeah, certainly there's a lot of urgency. You know, I think that that urgency still exists today for us. It's just in a different way and it's a different market. And we're kind of talking to clients differently, frankly, right? Because people can sell their home today, but we certainly wanted to capitalize on the market conditions that were out there. And, you know, I don't think our mindset around being aggressive with growth and being aggressive at growing a great business um, and being able to, you know, hire and employ a lot of great people has changed. Uh, just maybe our philosophy or, or how we're going about targeting those people or who they are, you know, has certainly kind of changed a little bit, but that's just kind of in our DNA. It's part of the DNA of Runners Warehouse. So the company is moving in a really hard charging fashion, growing aggressively and obviously a little bit of a kind of a, a cowboy atmosphere, which is just the nature of any startup, particularly a bootstrapped startup, a mom and pop startup, not even a valley startup. I mean, it's a really unusual story to see a company grow that aggressively without a ton of outside capital. But at some point, there was an inflection point where there is a decision to bring in outside capital 
up until that point, what was your role? Were you kind of like Brenton's right-hand man? What, what was the relationship up until that point? Yeah, uh, a couple pieces, actually, kind of a complicated question. So I was certainly, I think, the great way to refer to that is as I was Brenton's you know, right-hand man. He was very much a visionary and looking for you know, innovative ways to change the space, innovative ways to grow the business. Um, and he was very aggressive at doing that. And I was more behind the scenes. Uh, building up the operations platform to be able to, to fulfill on um, what we were trying to build and uh, working with our team internally on on how we were going to keep uh, keep the machine running as we continue to scale. I was also our largest franchise owner, right? And so as a, you know, a couple of broke entrepreneurs looking for a way to grow the business, franchising was kind of the obvious <laughs> answer, capitally efficient way to expand the business across the country. And uh, so as we sold franchises across the country, there were certain markets I was interested in and I ended up building quite a nice franchise portfolio warehouse. I had four different markets. Uh, so I was out running and growing my franchises uh, in certain you know, cities like Phoenix and Denver and, and also helping kind of grow the corporate uh, franchise or our corporate office as well with Brent. And up until uh, he sold um, and, and in 2015, uh, Brenton sold a majority stake of the business to our private equity partners. And at that time, uh, they wanted me to stick around and continue to, to lead and run the company. Uh, but also really align our interests. So I sold my offices back to corporate at the same time that we did that transaction and uh, became no was no longer a franchisee, but uh, then just a CEO of the business. So tell me more, man. Talk me through that. You've been kind of the right-hand man. You've also had these markets. You're selling. I mean, this is a lot of flux. This is a lot of transition, new people entering the relationship. What was it like to walk through that transition and how did the the culture, the energy of the company change during that time frame? You know, it was an amazing experience, right? Certainly something I'd never done before, never been through before. I was a um, you know, a small business entrepreneur. I'd grown a couple different businesses, you know, to to decent size and had grown several renters warehouse franchise offices across the country to doing, you know, several million dollars uh, to ten million dollars in revenue a year. You know, so I was a small business guy, and it was definitely moving into a new world. And you kind of referenced that aggressive growth or or that urgency to grow the business that we had back in the in the beginning. Like I said, that's still around, and and it really took on a new meaning. Also, as as you bring on outside capital and new investors, so it was a very interesting experience. It took me a long time to get my feet underneath me in in a new role, which really needed to be a little bit more strategic less in the weeds and operational and very much, you know, leading strategy and, and how we were going to grow and how we were going to continue to perform at a high level for our clients. But also now, uh, you know, we had, a, we had a lot of investors to answer to with, with their desire to, to grow a big business and make a return on their capital. So it was a very different role for me. It took me, I'd say, a year before I really got, got settled into it. Uh, but it's been, it's been really good for the business. I think we're able to continue to do some really innovative and exciting things. Uh, in the marketplace, I think we're able to, you know, we're, we're constantly focused on how we continue to increase our value proposition for our homeowners and our tenants alike to create a great experience out there for people in the SFR world. And we're able to do that because we have good capital backing. But it also requires us to be disciplined about how we're growing the business and be disciplined about um, how we're spending and allocating our resources. And, and the, the final piece of that, you mentioned the culture of the business. And I think that was that's been something that's that's been a conscious effort to maintain a great culture and a great place to work. But it's it's certainly one been one of the bigger challenges too, because culture can't be a top-down effort. It's gotta be a bottom-up thing. I believe culture is very grassroots. We set the tone at the top for that, but ultimately as the organization grows from two people to twenty people to two hundred people to four hundred people, over time that culture naturally does change because it can't. It can't be the same as it was when there was ten people in the office. It's very different, right? So that's uh, you know that's an interesting question. I think that business scientists can study that forever, trying to figure out you know all the culture questions. Uh, I don't think we'll ever solve it, but it's certainly something we spend a lot of time working on. Love it. All right, so I want to transition now to getting into the model. So many folks look at Renner's Warehouse and they scratch their heads and they think, what are these guys doing? The, the things that they're doing in terms of their aggressive positioning in the market or they're, they're running radio ads, hey, who does that? This seems like a really different model 
wouldn't make sense for me. How can it make sense for them? The company clearly has an underlying thesis about how these investors have chosen to deploy the capital. And there's a lot of outside capital coming in into the industry right now. So my question to you is, what is the story that outside capital is buying into that merits this, this investment spree that we see happening right now? How would you describe the capital opportunity within the, the SFR industry? Yeah, I think outside capitalists is starting to see that the SFR world, the SFR industry is a legit industry. Ten years ago when I got into this business, it wasn't really. You know, Frankly, I was the redheaded stepchild, as were all of us in the property management world, redheaded stepchild of the real estate industry, right? It was like, why the heck are you doing that? Uh, well, shortly thereafter, when, when the kind of the bottom fell out of the market, those same agents that, that were uh, you know, kind of patting us on the head of, of cute little property manager were knocking at the door looking for a job. Right. And so that was nice. But through that, with the institutional money that came in through Invitation Homes and Blackstone and bought all these homes and the other REITs that formed, you know, and I think early on, like we all know, it was really, it was looking to be a trade, right? Buy low, sell high. And in that time frame, they realized that this could be a good long-term business. And I think that was a big changing point in the industry. And that certainly helped our story as we went and searched for outside capital, that there's really something transformative happening in the space. There is a a real industry here and there's a real fragmented, young, unsophisticated, you know, uh, low tech industry, right? It's one of those last disrupted places. And and we thought we were in a good position to be a leader in that. Um, And that's, that's the story that our investors bought into. And that's what we've been executing on, you know, since we came into play and, and frankly, for us, we believe that there's still urgency around growth because we believe that there is a lot transforming in the marketplace today. There's a lot of consolidation happening of property owners, uh, you know, as, as larger funds continue to grow and, and, and buy out some of the folks who own a few homes and there's people getting into the space, but there's also consolidation happening among property management companies, right? And, and we're, we're trying to lead the charge at that, but it's becoming more and more popular. And I think that's a good thing. It continues to add legitimacy and credibility to what's happening in the space. You know, hey, we want to be winners, right? And so we're aggressive about it. I think sometimes we get a bad rap for it. Point is, that's what they bought into, right? Was that there's a lot of opportunity here. And they like the fact that we figured out how to get a retail client um, for a decent customer acquisition cost through untraditional means in this space, right? Meaning some of our radio advertising and television advertising and some of the different things we did, that was very attractive to them because we can show, we, we have the data to show our customer acquisition costs, our customer lifetime value, what the difference is, what that means for growth of the business. So that's what they bought into. That's what we've been executing on. We continue to double down on that. The only strategy that really changed once we brought on outside capital was we veered away from franchising for a while. Uh, we still have several franchises out there, 16 to be exact. We love our franchisees. They do a great job. Rich Drake, shout out to Rich Drake, right? And, you know, they're great. And we continue to support them. We love them. We bought some back. Um, you know, we're not selling any currently as we've, we saw an opportunity to really kind of change our model a bit and go after a corporate growth model to service investors in a different way. So that's a bit of a change. And then we, of course, you know, had some capital to do some acquisitions. Everything else is really... We're doing it the same way we've always done it and, and trying, to, trying to grow these markets and uh, create a brand that people know what it is um, and continue to grow. And I think, you know, sometimes people can get confused by that, as you mentioned, or, or get just perplexed by how the heck does that work? Or frankly, there's some missed, you know, I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago and they said, yeah, how can you guys just go into all these markets, just spend, spend, spend and lose so much money and, 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 and be constantly investing and not making any money and, and grow and like, what's your plan? How do you sell a company like that? Or, or does it matter? And are you going to implode? And like, what are you talking about? Like we have to, we're a profitable business, right? We worked for about a year and a half as we went through rapid expansion, but that was intentional. But at the end of the day, when you have sophisticated financial investors behind your company, you need to be smart about what you're doing and you need to be, you know, proving that you can make money. Uh, they, we're not a Silicon Valley tech startup that can have some crazy, you know, long-term revenue plan uh, and, and lose money forever, right? We're, we're not, a, we're not a, a VC-backed company. We're a private equity-backed company, which means they need to see growth. They need to see revenue growth. They need to see profit growth. They need to see margins improve, all those types of things. And so that's what we're dealing with today. And so I think that's you know, important for people to note as they look at our business. 
you know, is we're not necessarily cowboys out there just throwing it around, finding out what we can we can possibly do is we can go into markets and we have the scale to be able to go out and, and spend a lot of money to grow this business, but at the same time be profitable and give a return back to our investors. So that's a really helpful distinction. I would say when asking the question, where does renter's warehouse sit in terms of model, I think that some people do kind of mentally lump you in with Mind or Castle or One Rent. And there's a distinction between a service company that is powered by technology versus a technology company that is employing labor where necessary. Obviously, in terms of your roots, you guys, again, it's a, it's a mom and pop traditional company started by a guy with a dream, right? So in, so in that sense, the roots are very clear. Maybe in terms of some of the kind of parsing out the distinction or what's different about the company, obviously that, that capital component is different. The advertising, the sales and marketing component is very different. And Kevin, I'd love to get your feedback on this, but this is really my belief. My belief is that for a company that does have an aggressive growth goal, what so many folks miss is that sales and marketing has nothing to do with property management. It is its own distinct skill set. And for the companies that are really committed to growth, the evidence of that commitment looks like operationalizing sales and marketing as opposed to assuming that operations is property management and sales and marketing is something that you do on the side. I think that is part of what drives the footprint that a lot of people scratch their head around wondering, like, how can you afford to have that much of a sales marketing engine? But it's not purely about the capital expenditure, just in terms of throwing dollars out there, buying APM leads, or just running radio. There's actually some in-house infrastructure that I've had the pleasure of, of meeting some of the people behind that. But I'd love to hear more about that from you. So the company has grown a lot. Tell me about the, the growth infrastructure that you guys built early on. And how do you think that's different than how other companies have approached growth? We used to joke a lot as we were growing and, and, and really honed in on how to acquire the customer. We used to joke a lot that you know we were really a sales and marketing company with, with an emphasis in property management, right? <laughs> You're right. Sales and marketing are a very different function than property management operations. I think you need to break down this business into a couple of ways, which is how are you going to uniquely target the world of, of single-family rental property owners out there, which there's a ton of. Uh, we all know that this this marketplace is vast. And frankly, our largest competition as property managers is not ourselves and other property managers. It's people who do it themselves. How are we going to uniquely target them? How are we going to build a value proposition that makes sense? And you know, what's that sales marketing plan and strategy look like? That's one piece. Then there's you know, how you're going to retain that person on your books for as long as possible and, and make their, their real estate investments so easy that they don't want to sell it or that they're not frustrated and go somewhere else or go back to doing it themselves, et cetera. Right? So that's that operations piece. So I think there is a very distinct role there. I don't know if we consciously recognize that right away. That's just, I think, how we thought and how we grew the business. And then we started to make conscious decisions around it once we realized it was working. And you know, it kind of goes back to our early story on what maybe made us different or allowed us to go from small mom and pop property manager, local property manager, with no funding to the business we are today, was we looked at it like a business right out of the gate. And what I mean by that is, kind of to your point, we built out sales and marketing as a department, right? And we didn't find people from the real estate world or the property management world that knew sales and marketing and, and brought them in here. We went out and found the best sales and marketing people we could from whatever industry they were in and brought them into the fold and built that out. The same thing we do with our corporate finance team and our corporate accounting team and our HR department. We built a real true business and certainly spent a lot of time focusing on our sales team, our sales organization, our sales structure. We taught our real estate agents that are out there leasing homes and are really the front line for bringing on new clients for us, how to be salespeople, how to sell. And uh, we spent a lot of money building a marketing team all the way from a chief marketing officer down to in-house digital, in-house creative, all that kind of stuff. And, and so, yeah, I think every business out there needs sales and marketing. And frankly, it's, it's very similar disciplines. And so just because you're in property management or you're a smaller property management firm or real estate company doesn't mean you shouldn't apply those same principles to your business. We're definitely on the same page and we've seen the fruit that has come from that. It does seem like that part of the kind of implicit undertone of what's being asked there when that gets brought up. It goes back to what you just said. How do you guys make money? How are you not losing money, et cetera? So let's talk about unit 
economics. We did the benchmarking study, the property management industry financial benchmarking study earlier this year, released that, some really interesting results that came out of that. But one of the things that came out of that was looking at the annual contract value for your average property management company is around $1,700. And ultimately, that's going to be broken out part in the base management fee, part in the ancillary fees. We did not include maintenance revenue in that stat. So keep that in mind. When you guys think about the balance between having a tight standardized service offering, which is the nature of that that promise to the outside capital is that we can truly be focused and standardize this at scale. When we contrast that versus trying to max out the revenue opportunity on a per unit basis, talk to me about the tension between those two things and how you guys have intentionally approached leaning in one direction or the other. Because there does seem to be some implicit tension there. Agree? No, yeah, there, there really is. There's, there's built intention between maximizing that return and also having a, a standard platform, and especially as we grow to be a nationwide firm and across the country, having a standard offering that's easy to sell, easy to understand is very important. And, you know, there's, there's different ways we could probably monetize this business differently or at a higher level, but choose not to, to be for one of two reasons. One, to keep our offerings simple and be competitive in that manner, but also to the more you start changing fees or making a complex free structure, the more operationally intensive that becomes to make sure you're delivering on, on a good brand value. So, you know, we've been pretty thoughtful on, on how we've built our fee structures and our revenue models and things like that. And, and frankly, where we look for future expansion of that contract value on annual basis is really through value add services, you know, that we're going to be able to connect either our homeowners and investors with, you know, to increase the value proposition for them, but to also increase the revenue stream for us. So partnering with the right people or partnering with new services and new opportunities. But I don't think of the property management industry as a whole, mostly the SFR side, I think multifamily, they figured out, figured this out a little bit more, but on the, on the single family side, for sure, we haven't done a great job in what I call monetizing tenancy. Most of our fees as property managers, go to our homeowners, which makes sense. They are our clients. They're the ones we're working for and doing business with. But there's a lot of opportunity in this space to uh, make money off of our tenants as well. And not in a way where we're just nickel and diming people and, and charging bad behavior fees like late fees and NSF fees, et cetera, but to really deliver value to the tenant and get money coming off of them. And I think that's you know solving that um, and continuing to iterate on that is is a unique way where we're going to be able to increase our revenue per door on an annual basis, increase our customer lifetime value uh, without having to increase fees to owners. And so that's where a lot of our focus is today. And are these the things that are actually rolled out or are these programs that haven't actually come to fruition yet? Uh, a little bit of both, right? I mean, so we've done you know some ancillary fees that we're starting to see pop up more and more in the marketplace just from fees that really have less value, right? But, you know, some, some paperwork signing fees or lease admin fees or monthly technology fees so we can continue to enhance and roll our technology. And so we have some of those in place. But from things like working with service providers to provide utility discounts, cable TV, satellite TV, you know, utility connections, get our tenants a discount on those services, but be able to make, you know, commissions on, on those sales as well. You know, are things that I think is becoming more common in the property management world and we're working on rolling out great packages like that. You know, there's concierge packages and other ideas that we're able to roll out to to tenants and value add. So some of those things aren't rolled out yet. Some are. One of the things that we're very conscious of is I think there's a lot of cool ideas out there. We get pitched from vendors in the space all the time saying, hey, here's something that can add value to your homeowner, your tenant, and can put some money in your pocket. But we really don't want to be one of those companies that has has to have a, an addendum on the contract that shows all the different fees we're making, right? We want to keep things simple. And so we're trying to figure out how we can really do that and, and almost make living in a renter's warehouse home as a tenant more of a condo-like lifestyle for those who want it and be able to sell you know, concierge packages or service packages and things like that that add on that people can opt into and say, hey, this is real value add for me and my lifestyle. I love that. But it also makes us different from other companies that are out there uh, as from a tenant's perspective and, and really want to come in and move into our property. So all things in the works there, but that's kind of the mindset we're taking as we're looking at exploring. 
So let's continue this theme of optionality. With enough scale, again, there's so many distractions, so many opportunities through this, that, or the other. Let's pivot into technology and talk about the classic dichotomy between build versus buy. Surely you guys have been tempted and probably bit in the rear a couple of times with this build versus buy paradigm. You've got enough velocity, enough expertise, enough in-house knowledge about how the system should work and enough capital to be tempted to build a piece of tech as opposed to using something off the shelf. What's your kind of heuristic or framework in general for thinking about build versus buy for tech? We're trying to to walk that fine line the best we can. And there's a real dichotomy there. You mentioned that. And I think you need both. And we have we employ a lot of technology Renters Warehouse. And there's some things that I think are that fit our business model really well that we can buy off the shelf, implement into the business, and tie it all together in our back end. I think one of the things we did early on that was really smart a couple of years ago was build our own internal data warehouse. And, and our rule generally is if we're buying an off-the-shelf software that doesn't tie in with other pieces of software we have, it's got to work with our data warehouse so we can have a single source of truth on the data and tie it all together, at least for us, you know, on the back end. So we do use some third-party off-the-shelf bot software, SaaS platforms that work fine. But ultimately, we can't stop dreaming about the opportunity to build a piece of back-end property management technology that runs our business the exact way that we think it should be run. And for over a decade now, we've been building our business processes around the available technology. And you know, I think that perfect state, the perfect world, we would like to obviously build our technology around the right business process. And so while we do buy some off-the-shelf platforms, we're actually currently probably 90 days away from wrapping up a new technology build that we think can be game-changing for the business. We have certainly, to your point, been bit in the butt a couple times on that. And this isn't our first attempt, but we think we've taken what we've learned uh, from those uh, other attempts and are going to have a really cool, robust platform that's going to make sense for the business, make us super efficient and really allow us to run the business the way we want to run the business. Is this more or less internal property management software, what you're describing? Yeah, internal property management software, right? And it'll run all the, you know, all of our backend work that happens in property management will be done through this this one platform, which is really exciting for us. And I think that is just that build versus buy, that status quo versus not. Again, that goes back to what's in the DNA of our business and how we grew our business rapidly and how we did things differently. It's still there. You know, the other part of our DNA that we talked about earlier on the podcast is trial and error. We've tried things and we failed and we try again and we failed and we try again and hopefully we succeed. And we're really taking that approach even with technology. Now it's sometimes been a few more expensive mistakes in there or expensive lessons, so to speak in there. But uh, we've really taken the lessons we've learned the last couple of years as we've tried to develop other tools we're giving it a go here. and We're really excited to kind of see what the results are. And I don't know, I'm, I'm not certain that we'll give up until we really have that, uh, that platform that fits our business exactly the way we want it to fit. I've been working on this for years. Uh, it's taken a lot of money and it, I'm not done. <laughs> so I, I can't tell you uh, for certain what the right answer is yet. Years. Yeah, that's a fair, fair red flag. I want to play a clip for you from Gary Keller talking during the 2018 vision speech at Keller Williams and get your take on this. Property management is the real estate industry and it is the holy grail. It is it is the holy grail of data, right? In other words, you have everything on a person who can't buy a house. The world knows all that data, right? The mortgage knows who the buyer is that they buy. The property management industry knows who all those people are, right? Over 60% of, of all Americans are tenants, and somebody has that knowledge. And where does it sit? In the property management software is where it sits. By the way, every home that is, prop, is in the property management, they have the property management inspection data. And how often is that updated? At the worst, once a year, some are aggressive every six months. We looked up and went, oh my gosh, whoever has the, and by the way, if you use off-the-shelf property management software, who owns the data? They, they do. You don't. You don't. You don't. That's why property management software companies right now are trading at massive, massive multiples. 
not because of the money they make off of the property management software fee. What's your take on that? How do you think about a realistic approach to assessing the opportunity the data represents? There's so much noise, AI, big data, BI. There's so much noise around data right now. And your description of build versus buy, you talked about control, workflow, process, et cetera. But on the point of data specifically, what do you think is the, is the near-term opportunity or maybe one or two use cases where there's actually some meaningful leverage that could be gained by, by owning your data full stack? Yeah, our data is really important to us. And every contract we get into, we really, we really look at that. We have the discussion with the vendor and oftentimes change how the, the boilerplate contract's written. So for you know, other property managers out there listening know that sometimes you can do that. Um, we may have some additional leverage sometimes because we are a large account, but I think that's important because I think data, as the world grows and changes, we've all seen this. Data is really becoming more and more important. In our space, there's a huge opportunity that exists. I think Gary's, Gary Keller's right in what he's talking about because, again, as we talked about earlier, Jordan, this is, a, this is an infant, very young industry. And so people are still figuring out the data of the industry. People are still figuring out the technology of the industry. You know, there's an old saying of he who holds the keys holds the power. It's kind of like he who holds the data holds the power. I don't know all of the different ways that we're going to be able to leverage and use data, but we've certainly had those conversations internally that we're really starting to gather some really interesting data on the single family space, right? There's a lot of data that's been developed over the last five years for institutional level, large portfolio owners on how their portfolios perform, maintenance metrics, CapEx information, down to the zip code on net operating income and returns and yields and all that kind of stuff. There's not yet that same level of data for the retail market, for lenders to be able to underwrite a property in a different way because we can talk about how they historically perform. And unless you have bulk data collection on you know rent histories and rent increases and on-time payments and delinquencies and all that kind of stuff and maintenance expense and capex and all the stuff that goes into managing maintaining and, and maintaining this asset you need a lot of that to be able to to say that this is how this one asset is likely going to perform owned by some random person so i think there's huge opportunity to be able to leverage that data and get real life trends on how one single single family rental property performs, you know, in certain regions of the country. So that's one way. I think there's 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 tons of different ways we're able to do that. Ultimately, as an organization, we rent so many homes, have so many homes that we're starting to be able to look at running some of our own different rent analysis tools. Right? We obviously use a lot of the rent analysis tools out there, but we have a lot of internal data on this. And frankly, from a value standpoint, as we're talking to our clients, you know, we like to be able to compare what you know, maybe the average rent for their home might say it is on some of the different rent tools and on the MLS and, and everything else they're seeing and maybe what Renters Warehouse has been getting historically for those types of properties. How are we competing against the industry as we're talking to our clients, whether they're new clients or, or existing clients coming on board? So just even benchmarking yourself against some of the data that's out there, I think is a profound sales and marketing tool. Um, that's just internal. So I think there's there's going to be Countless ways that you can be able to leverage data. I think as property management companies grow and expand, understanding who owns the data, who doesn't, what data you can leverage, what data you can use is really important to be thinking about. All right, Kevin, I do want to keep moving here. And instead of doing the traditional rapid fire section of the close up on the interview, we're actually going to do some questions from the audience. I put it out to my audience earlier today that I was going to be interviewing you and I asked for some feedback and there were some specific questions that came through. So I want to pose some of those to you now. The first question is from Matthew Tringali. The question is this, why does our industry insist on valuing businesses based on management fees? When will we progress to valuing and selling businesses based on some EBITDA multiplier like every other industry? The best answer to that, I think, is because so many of the businesses in our industry, property management is probably very small businesses. Um, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, like you're small, so you don't matter. It's just manage two, three, four, 500 doors. And a lot of small business owners run a lot of different expenses through the organization or have been spending a lot of money advertising and marketing, taking Jordan's advice and growing their business. A lot of the companies, at least that we look at acquiring, have on paper very small profit margins or very small 
low EBITDA numbers. And so an EBITDA multiple actually does no justice to a seller. It doesn't actually talk about the true value of what they could get. So oftentimes, especially with deals we're looking at, we're finding that we actually pay a higher price based on contract terms. We usually bid on a per door basis, depending on the fees that are charged. We pay higher than we would if we were just doing a straight EBITDA multiple like traditional you know, other businesses sell. So I think it's because of the, the nature of our business, the fragmented world of property management and how people are running their businesses, that it's just, it's not today a very practical way. When we've looked at some larger deals, we've bought some, you know, thousand plus unit property managers, we have gone in and discussed EBITDA multiples. So it's not that it doesn't happen, it's just that for many, it's not the right calculation. Next question is from Brad Larson. How do you think about customer acquisition costs? What mental framework informs what range is considered acceptable? To figure that out for your individual business, I think you need to understand your customer lifetime value. So over the term, the life of that customer with you, from the day they start to the day they leave, what's that contract worth? What's that customer worth to your business? So it's one thing to know your annual you know, revenue off of a contract. And you guys did a big study, a benchmarking study, what, last year? And I think you said it was 1700 bucks was the average benchmark. So that's one thing to know. But now, how long is your client lasting? What's your average churn? I believe in your benchmarking study, Jordan, it was something like 25%. Yep. So about four years for average customer lifetime. So if we take that and you say it's four years, you now know what your total customer lifetime value is, which that's $7,000. Uh, but Renner's Warehouse, ours is a little bit higher than that. Call it seven thousand dollars. Now you need to look at you know what what you want as a return on your investment dollars, and also what your margins are on that, right? But we really look at it and say if if we can make call it four times, four to five times what it costs us to acquire a customer, we're willing to pay that um, on a revenue basis. That's what kind of really creates rapid growth, right? We probably are willing to spend a little bit more on a per customer acquisition base than others. I know when I tell people, I'm like, holy cow, that's crazy because I don't have the margins to be able to sustain that. But that's kind of how I look at it. So you really need to know that customer lifetime value, do some math and understand what your margins might be on that, and then figure out what you're willing to spend to make that. And, and me, even in the early days of the business, very simplistically, we looked and said, look, if we can spend $1 in marketing and make $3, that's a good equation. I think it's just it's as basic as that. You got you to gotta really understand your numbers, though, in your business and really be managing those financials to be able to make those smart decisions. Well, so I'll join the crowd of saying that is really unusual. So you put it out there, that ratio of one to four in terms of CAC to lifetime value. So you said that Renner's Warehouse customer lifetime value is slightly higher than the 7,700 industry average. Let's assume it's 10K. Am I hearing you say that a 2,500 to 10K ratio is is what you're describing in terms of kind of that upper bound of what you guys would still be willing to, to tolerate? Yeah, 2,500 starts to get us a little bit worried. That's somewhat of the basic math there that, uh, that we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Guys, that is fascinating. That is really aggressive. And let's, let's use this to just kind of take a foray into this whole, whole topic of profit. Because if you guys are that aggressive with your marketing, there has to be some profit margin that is built into that. People like to talk about CAC to lifetime value. In my experience, CAC relative to customer lifetime profit is a less talked about, but arguably more important conversation. Because on an individual company by company basis, it doesn't matter what the industry averages are. It matters what your profitability is. Because your customer lifetime profit if you take that and you back out sales and marketing, that's basically the stack of chips from which you have to draw from to spend on customer acquisition costs. So if you guys are willing to have that aggressive of a customer acquisition cost to lifetime value ratio, there obviously has to have some uh, to be some healthy profit in there, right? I mean, you're tracking with what I'm saying. If there's no profit and your customer lifetime profit is you know 500 bucks, then you cannot spend more than $499 or else you're not making any money. Exactly. You know, everyone's going to be a little bit different. And we also have the advantage of economies of scale, right? And so the larger we get, frankly, the better our margins become because we're able to take advantage of that scale, take advantage of the economies of scale. And so that number certainly changed over the years as, as we've grown the business. Next question from Greg Abel. How does Renner's Warehouse handle maintenance as a revenue stream? Maintenance is not a huge revenue stream for Renner's Warehouse today. We've never really had it be a huge revenue stream. Um, and I think we might be missing out on some opportunity there. And so we're actually evaluating that. So on some of our larger contracts we work with, uh, it specifically calls out that we're not 
in the contract that we will not make money off of, of maintenance. We pass direct maintenance expenses through. Um, and then on some of our retail clients and, and more of our smaller kind of onesie, twosie owners, what we'll go out and do is cut a deal with all of our vendors. We use our, our large scale, again, going back to those efficiencies and economies of scale. We'll use our scale of markets to go buy down rates. Ultimately, we'll keep some of that discount for ourselves, generally around 10% of the total ticket price. Our goal as an organization is to ensure that our clients will receive a discount off retail price at the same time that we're still able to make some income off of managing the maintenance ticket. So oftentimes we'll go out and talk to our vendors and say, hey, we're, you know, we've got this huge set of pool of uh, big pool of properties. We're going to send you, you know, there's how much work we estimate we can send you for that. We're going to need some discounts. Here's the discount we'd like. Uh, we pass some of that on to our client. We keep some of that for ourselves. That's how we disclose it in our contracts to our, to our owners as well. And we make, so oftentimes we'll make about 10%. But at the end of the day, certain markets, we don't do that. Depends on if we're able to find enough vendors for that particular market. I think maintenance management, vendor management is one of the more important pieces of this business right now, especially as we continue to grow across the country. So we're not putting maintenance profit first. We're putting having a good maintenance process and a good maintenance service for our homeowners and tenants first. Um, and as we reach scale in certain markets, we start adding on that ability to to mark down some of the invoices and keep a portion of that for ourselves. So of our of our total revenues, maintenance maintenance revenue is well under probably five percent of our total revenues today. Question from Todd Ortsheed: When will Renner's Warehouse stop undercutting everybody else with these ridiculously cheap flat rate management fees that aren't sustainable long term? But I'm sure you don't want to ask him that, Kevin. Let's just take this question head on. Renner's Warehouse pioneered the flat fee model. There was a lot of friction about that. A lot of folks feeling like somehow this was like a sacred cow that was being violated going from a percentage to flat fee. Give me the 411. Why did Renner's Warehouse pioneer flat fee? And what's your whole take Your whole take on that? Because obviously it's, it is a gripe for some people. Yeah. I uh, love the question, actually. Look, we did it because we came into this industry. We came into to get into the private management space. We we wanted to be different, right? I think that's how you stand out in a in a business, and I think that's how you have successful sales and marketing campaigns is being different. We wanted to simplify the world of property management for homeowners and investors that had single family homes. We said instead of these complicated fee structures or this that or the other, let's make it easy. Let's let's pick a flat fee on the leasing side. We have a flat fee. It varies with rent, but it's you know generally one month's rent sometimes more for long-term leases. And then we have a flat fee of $89 to $99 a month for property management. And it is less. But in certain certain cases, our leasing commission's more and that monthly management fee might be less. But if I, if I really went through and benchmarked our fees, kind of our all-in fee structure across other property management companies, across all of our different markets, we're generally somewhere in the middle. We are absolutely not the cheapest. Uh, in fact, I have the same question that this listener had for some of our competitors in some of our markets, like, holy cow, how are you going to sustain your super low $49 a month flat fee? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, but we're also not the most expensive. And so we spent a lot of time really actually looking at that. And, and uh, we by no means want to be the cheapest in the market. I think we kind of get a, a bad rap for that sometimes inside the industry that we're trying to really undercut people. We're not. We just wanted to have a basic fee structure that was simple to understand, simple to sell. Things that are simple to sell and easy to understand are easy to buy. And it helps us obviously bring on clients and work that way. And I think to the the question of it being sustainable, I would argue that it's not unsustainable because I've been doing it for 11 years. (laughs) Touche. Fair enough. All right. The final question of the day is from Brandon Skolton. I'd be curious to know about their centralized model and how they divide work between the satellite office and the main office. Has this proven to be efficient for them? And does Renner's Warehouse find that they can deliver similar service in different markets? Or is it still pretty dependent on the quality of staff at each location? I think this is a work in progress. He's right. We do have a centralized backend where we do a lot of centralized work for all of our markets. And that was one of the goals three years ago when we embarked on building a bit of a corporate model was to be able to, again, reach some of those efficiencies of scale and, and develop something unique and different in the space. So we've done that. But I think there was also lessons to be learned from early on when some of the early funds started to centralize, whether it was Invitation Homes or American Homes for Rent or those guys. They were, they were trying to do it centrally, too, out of Atlanta or Arizona or Phoenix, you know, in Phoenix or Dallas or wherever they were. 
the cautionary tale I took from watching their expansion was that they didn't have good transparency and, and really aligned interests with the local market help they had because they oftentimes just subbed everything out to subcontractors in the local markets, whether it was leasing, went to just traditional realtors, inspections went to you know third-party inspection companies, they'd use realtors for other property management tasks or, or whatever it may be. There wasn't a good alignment of interests. I don't think it worked well. And I think that's why some people saw the centralized aspect of single-family property management not working. So what we did when we embarked on this centralization effort was what matters to be local and what doesn't matter. Real estate is local at the end of the day. And so in every market that renters warehouses in, we have dedicated renters warehouse W-2 employees on the ground doing work, right? So that's that was step number one. We do have local people. We're at a local office. We have an office. We have folks that work exclusively for renters warehouse, not only as a W-2 employee, we also have exclusive 1099 leasing agents that work for us as well. So everything is done under the renter's warehouse umbrella with our staff, our employees, our independent contractors, so we can direct how that happens. As far as you know, how we break up those tasks, you know, things that can get done from anywhere, like fielding a maintenance phone call from a tenant, understanding the problem and finding the appropriate vendor, it can be done from anywhere. So we centralize a lot of that back into our call center. Uh, collecting rent, if it's phone calls, text messages, letters, et cetera, Oftentimes that can be done from anywhere. But once you need to go past that phone call and the rent collection or the text message or the letter, go visit the home. We have somebody in the local market to be able to go do that. So we are looking at it that way. And the last piece of the question is how are we able to you know, perform on a, a service level for our clients? You know, we think we're still doing a good job with that, but it does require us having good people, regardless of whether you're a centralized business or a very localized business. This is still very human capital intensive business. No matter what technology we roll out or what technology we employ, I think we're never going to get around the fact that this is a human capital intensive business. And that requires us having some of the best people we can find be a part of our team. And that's where we're really starting to excel is really understand how we identify those people, find people who enjoy this type of work, enjoy what they're doing here every day. It always ends up coming down to we have to rely on our people to do a good job. Great way to wrap the interview, man. Love that. For those that want to hear more about the Renters Warehouse story, maybe you're interested in checking out your book or potentially talking about joining the Renters Warehouse family, what's the best way for them to get more information or get in touch? Renterswarehouse.com is, of course, our website. It's got all of our current markets there. You know, We're always hiring. We're always recruiting. We're always bringing on more people, always looking at doing acquisitions and growing our family. So Renterswarehouse.com is great there. You can find me on LinkedIn. Evan Ortner. And then, of course, the book that we released that's been uh, been a big hit for us is Rent-A-State Revolution. You can find that on our website uh, or rentastaterevolution.com or, of course, Amazon. Through those methods, you're certainly going to find a way to get in touch with me. All right. Love it. Hey, Kevin, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for being candid, answering some hard questions. Really appreciate your time. Let's stay in touch. All right. Great. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.